Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. Jordan, you were just in uh, Rockhampton. How was that? Oh, amazing. I love Rockhampton so much. It's like beautiful land to begin with. And a lot of that land flows straight into the Great Barrier Reef because of how clear it is. And you can see that the river is like way more brown than even the Yarra. But, uh, you know, it's it's top quality soil. It's just getting washed out into the ocean. Where, like, geographically, how far north is it? Is it further north than Townsville? No. It's this, I guess it's like the serious stop before Townsville. Uh-huh. But you like you realize how big Australia is because I had to get on another plane to get there and it was one of those Jurassic Park planes with the old school propellers on it. Yeah, you know, you know you're doing a good show when you get on one of those ones. Yeah. Was it a good show? Was, yeah, it, an, was like, it at an RSL? Of course it was. And the RSL was horrible and, and this, the sound was terrible and no one cared because – they're just grateful you're there. Yeah. Every time. Did you do Townsville as well? No, I'm going to go do that later on. I've do never like done Townsville? a show. Yeah, I, I've done a show in Townsville twice, I think, and I've never done a show in Rockhampton. I've done Cairns and, yeah, Townsville and, of course, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, never Rockhampton. It's very inaccessible. Anything that's on the coast, there's many ways to it. You could go by ferry if you wanted to, but... You know, that's not – it's like if, if you're going on there on like a plane that looks like it should be on the set of Casablanca, it's going to be hard. And it was. It was a hard slog. But well, other than that, I loved they, it. They it was extremely Aussie. Huh? They didn't laugh or what? Oh, what? no, they laughed. They were an extremely polite audience, let's say. It was strange. Yeah. It was like – it was. It, you know what it was? It was like performing to a based audience – at the opera house. What do you mean based? Like, you know, you could say things about other races and they'd laugh instead of going. <laughs> Wait, why would you, wouldn't, wouldn't the opera house be quite politically correct? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what was so good about Rockhampton. It was just okay. this audience that was like the opera house in that they were just like very polite Sophisticated, Ooh, but at the same time, if you okay, go yeah, like yeah, okay, Asians, okay. they'd be like, "Yeah, you know." It was just okay. like, like, how comedy <laughs> supposed to be? Was it uh, majority white? Yeah, obviously. Like, I mean, it's it's fucking Rockhampton. There's no such thing. Uh, there's no one in Rockhampton other than white people and Aboriginals. That's it. There's no like. I mean, okay, there's probably the one Indian, Indian doctor. Yeah, there's always like a couple of Indian taxi drivers, and then. The, yes. the family that owns a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't even think they've gone that far. Oh, yeah, we got diversity, mate. Yeah, that. You know, the shoes that run the restaurant, they're great. But that's this is what I'm saying. That, that, is a, that is a New South Wales thing. You know, I went there and Miss was looking at sushi that cost $6. And I was like, don't get that. This is not near the ocean. You should not be buying like discount sushi from somewhere that doesn't have a dock, right? And uh, he looks up and I'm just like, yeah, okay, it's, it's going to be like a Chinese family replacing a Japanese family or whatever. It was an Aboriginal serving him. I was just like, get the fuck away from the sushi. You should never be eating sushi from anyone who is an exclusively <laughs> Japanese, let alone not Asian. I, like it's just you're not getting it. Don't you don't you think it's great when the, the, the smaller the town is, the more fusion the restaurant is? It's like Indian restaurant, but also with chicken chow mein. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, where they have the like it's 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 a restaurant just called like Golden Dragon or Confucius. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got nothing to do there's very few Chinese dishes on it. There's Australian Chinese, which is just Canton. <laughs> and then there's uh yeah, like a few Malaysian dishes. You know, like they'll just chuck in things like laksa and um migarang. It's, yeah, yeah, it's really. an amazing combination. Yeah, all of Asia in one restaurant. That's what all you of get. Asia in one restaurant uh, from and it's corporate the fa- Australian packets. Yeah, and it's the fancy place to eat because you've either got that or the, uh, the a pub feed. What's Rockhampton known for? Beef. <laughs> it's the beef capital. Okay. And you know what else? We were there and we were saying, where's a good place to get a steak here? And they were saying, like... There's no such thing. You get better beef in Sydney, but all the good beef is exported and like 80% of that goes to Japan. So they're just left with like McDonald's grade 100% Australian beef, which is just a company. Surely if they're exporting that much to Japan, they can can keep like 1% of it and feed probably all of Queensland. Yeah, well, definitely. Actually, Japanese don't eat much. Very small portions, <laughs> a little. But there's so of many of them, though it evens out. That's yeah, but even then, I mean, they are. Yeah, you can go small portions. You're wasting and, and Australians food. have portions that are way too big. That's so true. Like you know, a country's wealthy when like you go to the poor, the the like the diner, and the portions are gigantic, and then when you go to a rich restaurant, the portions are tiny. I know, man. That's always the killer. I, yeah. I, I, I really hate when you owe it to your girlfriend and you have to eat where they want to eat because you know that you're just going to be empty out of a wallet and an empty stomach at the same time. And also on top of this, this is the great thing as well, it never tastes as good as ethnic food ever. Like if you just go to a restaurant in Lakemba that's just like, do you want falafel? And that's all they have on their menu. It's going to be better than the fusion that you get in the city. I've never been to a Michelin star restaurant and thought that was worth my money. Yeah, no. Any, anyway, fusion—that's just a—that's a cash grab, isn't it? Uh, that's an Asian family coming here thinking we also sell curry and close enough. Mm. It's all Southeast Asia, yes, and they won't know the difference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it works. It definitely works. Do you think the people who own the Chinese restaurants in those small towns actually are quite? Well off. That, that, that is the formal restaurant of that. Like they could charge $40 and no one would know the difference. And every event. So yeah. anything from weddings to uh, the golf club society all meet birthday up, parties, all, the, yeah, all yeah. birthday parties. Yeah. The if you're doing banquets. Happy Dragon Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Mm. They'd be minted. But the problem is there's no way to uh, extol your wealth in the country except for owning huge ranches, you think and that's like, not their expertise. Do you think in 150 years it'll be the opposite, but in China there'll be like the one Australian restaurant in small towns and it'll just be like sneaky capitalistic Australians trying to like get back at the, at the Chinese empire. <laughs> what, authentic Australian? <laughs> yeah, and they have to put like a fucking crocodile D hunt, Dundee yes. hat on the whole time and just be a stereotype. 
Okay, so it's just Outback Steakhouse. Yeah, yeah. That's- G'day, guys. <laughs> Welcome to Australian cuisine. <laughs> you know, but what? they've also got yes. a fusion of all Western food. So yeah, well, what's that? So, I don't know. They got like bratwurst oh, well, in there. Burgers, got- <laughs> bratwurst, snails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Try our steak and snails. Yeah, <laughs> true Western food. <laughs> yeah. Would you like an entree of haggis? <laughs> yeah, McDonald's and chips, burgers and chips. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, and, I mean, there's like a Tekken. I think I don't know if it's Tekken or uh, Street Fighter, but there's a character there that they have, and it's just this sort of. It's very indicative of how the Japanese see Americans because there's obviously Ken, not Ken, the, whoever the the main mm-hmm. American guy is, but then there's one guy who's just a, this obese bl- blonde guy. I think he has a mullet, and he's just got like a burger and chips in his hands and like a midriff. Like he's, <laughs> but he's a good fighter. I know what you're talking about. Which ca- yeah, is that? Am I getting? Is it Tekken or Street Fighter? I can't, it's one of them. It's Tekken. It's Tekken okay, it's Seven. Tekken. Yeah, 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 Tekken Seven. And then there's the guy who's just very obese. And as you mentioned before, got to be in the top five. He's a good. He's yeah, he's a good fighter. Good fighter. And mm. for some reason, really quick. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know. Because usually works. they balance that out very well. Like if you have Gun Jack, he's slow but he's powerful. Mm. But this guy, he's got it all. Man, Tekken was great. Who are the other great characters? Tekken, Tekken? is. I think the most satisfying game I've ever played. Mm, I can play it over and over and not be bored. And you know what happens at the end of it as well? You know when you get to someone that's like matched with you in terms of tech and skill? Uh, I think that when you leave that, you leave out of this feeling every time of like, ooh, that was a really close fight. We just have to stop because it it was so fun and involved that it became too intense. Like every time I've ever left Tekken, it's never been like, and putting the game controller down. It's just like, oh my god, oh my, no, that's too much, too much. What Can't number Tekken did you did you uh, you know last play? Because it got pretty bad by eight. Oh, did it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I vaguely remember playing eight. I think it was either seven or eight. One of them. I played a little bit, and I was like, this is trash. But I remember Tekken four. I love mm. that one. That was the golden age. And then I think Tekken 5 was quite good as well. Right. When I was a teenager, basically, and then I I, I remember playing one of the later games and thinking, no, nah, it's, it's just not the same. But Oh, before, really? But yeah, before we get on to uh, that conversation, let's uh, let's have a quick word from our uh, our sponsors. I saw you actually were, were wearing the Earthy shirt in one of your videos. It fits. Yeah, free, free advertising for them. But yep. uh, yes, this podcast is sponsored by... I'm earthy, I-M-E-A-R-T-H-I-E.com.au. If you basically want to purchase the most ethically produced clothing in Australia based in the south coast of New South Wales, go to imearthy.com.au. Use the code Neil Jordan. You not only just get 15% off, they will donate $5 per shirt to their foundations, and those foundations are the Australian Conservation Foundation and Sea Shepherd Australia. Uh, they're not just trying to sell clothes. They're trying to have a positive impact on the environment and the community. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm wearing one of their T-shirts now. They are very comfortable, uh, 100% organic cotton, no toxic pesticides, no f- toxic fertilizers, nothing like that. None of the workers are exposed to chemicals, and everyone throughout the production line is paid a living wage with reasonable hours of work, safe and healthy working conditions, free from discrimination in the workplace, 
with no exploitation of child labor. So go to imearthy.com.au, use the code NEILJORDAN, all one word. We're also sponsored by Crush Organics, uh, Crush with a K, K R U S H organics.com. Uh, got a huge range of CBD oil, CBD oil products. They've got the nighttime oil, the platinum oil, the diamond oil. I've been using it for over a year now, and it's uh, helped me sleep. It's helped my stress. It's uh, It just generally reduces your tension throughout the day. So go ahead and get some Crush Organic CBD oil. Use the code NEEL for that one. That's just N-E-E-L, and you get 40% off. They've got, they've got pain cream. They've got CBD oil for your pets as well. So uh, CrushOrganics.com and, of course, I'mEarthy.com.au. Uh, for I'm Earthy, the code is Neil Jordan, and for CrushOrganics.com, the the code is just Neil. All right, what do you want to do with this podcast? We've got a couple of questions, or uh, we just keep talking about Tekken. Both are great options. I, I think I think we do owe it to the people that actually pay for the podcast to answer their questions. But I will say, under extreme duress, we are doing this. I would much rather yeah, would try rather and talk. recall the name of the fat player in Tekken City. Entire podcast just about Tekken. You know, the, <laughs> the best part about Tekken is just the continual storyline of the, each of the generations of the main characters. Because you know, isn't it like the son of the main Hihachi or something is the main Hihachi. guy? Yeah, and then then, then what's the son's name? Uh Jade. Far out. Something well, with Jade. The, the son of that son, the grandson no. as well, who's there as well. No. Yeah. So it's just a big babushka doll and they're all trying to fight each other. Beautiful. Yeah. Trying to become the master. <laughs> it's great. Okay. So so we've either got a we've got a question here about uh one. Okay, we've got a question about cellular agriculture, or we've got a question about someone who uh has just got a job at the Department of Home Affairs. Whoa. Yeah. So which one do you want to interested in both? Extremely interested in both, and I'm going to go on a massive tirade when we talk about agriculture. But anyway, okay, well, let's go with home affairs. And so this is <laughs> Save the um, for later. <laughs> from anonymous. Uh, hey guys, love your work. Uh, I have a quandary and would appreciate your input. I've recently been interviewed for a legal officer position at the Department of Home Affairs. Okay, so it's an interview. The position involves providing legal advice to assist in the development of laws which reflect developmental policy initiatives. So I'll effectively be helping the department pass legislation which furthers their agenda. This sounds like interesting work. However, my issue is that the Department of Home Affairs didn't exactly represent the last word in virtue and integrity (laughs) under Dutton. My question is, therefore, is it worth taking the gig now that a new government is at the helm? Or, excuse me, has the corruption slash mismanagement taken root too deeply to do anything, any meaningful work. I know that Labor already has plans on removing the AFP from the home affairs portfolio, which seems like a step in the right direction given the implications that such a marriage of the executive and legislature tends to have on the rule of law. Cheers. All right, well, leaving this one entirely up to you because uh, well, s- I'd be like, bro, what's the salary? It's good, take it. <laughs> 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 not not a bad way to look at it either. And then and then use your excess money to do something ethical. It actually is, you know, a it, jobs it can job. pan out if you actually do it, it pans out. But uh I just gotta say, I am so 
I don't know if I've ever said this to the uh, Neil and Jordan audience before, but you are my favorite audience. I'm always more so amazed. than your other than your than your main YouTube audience. Oh, this trash. And and see, the fact that I even use the word, it says trash. <laughs> it's just, look, obviously there's a lot of good people in the mix there, but once you're that mainstream, when you're hitting 625,000 people, like there's going right, to be no a lot of- huh? No need to brag. Well, you know, if the shoe fits, <laughs> right? It's, it's just, there's it's obviously just not going to be the same core of- uh, you know, very engaged human beings. Like there's going to be a lot of TikTok addicts on that. That's but fair. Obviously there's good people on it as well and that they consist of the audience, I'm guessing. But like for this guy, for instance, <laughs> definitely. Okay. All the intelligent people. Um, but like this guy, that's impressive that he's being asked to give legal advice to the Department of Home Affairs. Can you imagine what a brain that man is? Like you've got to have some, uh, you know, ego expansion hearing that that man listens to us. I mean, look, can I just say this? You are definitely smarter than Neil and I. Yeah. Definitely. Look, we've certainly had a few questions where I, I've, I've had that similar realisation. I mean, you're, what well, you said is far exactly more intelligent true because I don't than- even know much about the Department of Home Affairs. Yeah. All I know is that it's got something to do with immigration and yeah. illegal and or legal immigration. Yeah. Uh, so this person clearly is very intelligent. So weird that person. that guy is asking advice from us when this is like a secondary thing where we're being like, we don't want to talk about tech. And, like it's <laughs> pathetic. Like, let me just say that first off. What We're the probably not the most qualified people to be giving advice on this. But I will say. Okay. Yeah. Let's just say, do you think, has the Department of Home Affairs or will the Department of Home Affairs change with the Labor government? It already has. Massively. Okay. Huge. Because first off, this is the really interesting thing about what the uh, Labor government has immediately done. They've already changed the ship that guides Australia, which is the public service. Like, you know, you don't have a good public service, you don't have a country. That's what really constitutes a republic is the bureaucracy. That's it. These are publicly owned mechanisms that actually are, like, just think about this. Can you imagine a country that doesn't have a bureaucracy? It just can't function. It immediately crumbles. There's nothing holding it together. There's no institutions regulating things. There's no institutions building things. None so of that's there. What have they specifically done to uh, the uh, to home affairs? Can you? And I'm very. I actually apologise with my ignorance here. So, what exactly is home affairs? Uh, like I said, I really just know that it's essentially the department that deals with immigration. And yeah, well, you know, Dutton was at the helm. Yes. Mm. Look, this is you are about as in the dark as I am, and this man is, and even if he works for it, I bet you he will be, because it is truly the shadow government. We know that it was the convergence of everything to do with immigration, everything to do with, uh, let's just say, intelligence, anything to do with cybersecurity, all the dark arts of government were just merged into this. <laughs> okay. Huh? I just like that you called it the dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is, though. It's amazing. It was true Voldemort magic, home affairs. Anyone that ever says that Peter Dutton's an idiot, 
I, I always have to swiftly rebuke them because I'm just like, the Department of Home Affairs is not the creation of an idiot. That is a Machiavellian genius. That is a man who has combined all the elements. And this is the other thing that was really sinister about the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, because there was so much money pulled into it, because he got the perfect moment. This is why he's a genius as well. He figured out the perfect moment where Malcolm Turnbull was really weak and he was looking at leadership challenges from all ends. And truth be told, this is what I've heard within the Liberal Party, Peter Dutton, when he was challenging Malcolm Turnbull for leadership, that was kind of a secondary goal of his. The main goal was to create the Department of Home Affairs. He wanted to be the head of that. Mm, damn. And Long-term thinking. He's, he's a super, super strategic thinker. I always say this. He's the Paul Keating of the Liberal Party, except for he can't make a speech for shit. Yeah. I mean, it, look, it, for, for all his flaws in terms of the way he presents himself and his just lack of charisma... The fact that he's gotten to the leadership of the Liberal Party shows that he clearly has qualities that make up for that lack of charisma. Oh, yeah. He must be a highly intelligent, scheming, uh, just just clever man because he has actually – he came from being a police officer to being a multi-multi-millionaire, whether through, you know, virtuous means or not. He's, he's clearly got – Something to him. Which I've always got to say when people say, yeah, he got that out of corruption. It's like even if it was, there's a lot of uh, con men and leeches on the Australian purse that are nowhere near as wealthy as Dutton, even if it is illegitimate. Yeah, to, to, make, to be richer than Malcolm Turnbull requires some intelligence. Is he richer than Malcolm Turnbull? I think double. What's, I think he has double the wealth. Is it mainly just uh, a property portfolio or? Uh, yes. He's not that old either. Nah, nah. So he's a massive, and he didn't come from, as far as I'm aware, he didn't come from a wealthy family. So he's just, nah. he's a massive himself in the better part of two decades. Yeah. It's, it's, he knows what it's he's remarkable. doing. He's a very, very capable politician. He knows how to get what he wants. And the other thing is, this is the other genius portion of him. He knows how to lever uh, greater powers, whereas the rest of the Liberal Party, I always think, are just taking their directives directly from think tanks and corporate lobbyists. I think that Peter Dutton knows how to manoeuvre them to work for him. He's he's a next level thinker. He really is like a very strategic thinker. But so, what was his uh, when he put together the Home Affairs uh, Department? Why did he combine all these sorts of facets of government into one department? Is it was it a sort of liberal outlook of like we're limiting government here by just combining it all together? But also, hey, I can have a lot more control by just being at the helm of this you know, coalition of other departments. What 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 was what do you think he was doing when he did that? I honestly think Peter Dutton is the most dangerous liberal leader they've had since Howard, in that I would say that he is just as intelligent as Howard is. Yeah, I think I think honestly that there's just been a complete dearth of intellectual power in the Liberal Party. Uh, since John Howard. John Howard, as I've always said, was an exceptional politician, didn't care about policy at all, was amazing at the game of politics. 
And I think that Peter Dutton is actually the reverse, but again, in the form of dark arts, but he's very good at guiding the bureaucracy of Australia to his vision and his vision of the world, obviously because he's a cop and you can just hear it in the way that he sees the world. He actually has some intellectual gusto behind him, which was lacking with the rest of them. The rest of them were purely in politics for self-serving measures. Uh, Look, Tony Abbott, I think, is just there for religious reasons mostly, cultural and religious reasons. But Peter Dutton is there because he has a view of the world, that the world is a scary place filled with a lot of threats, obviously the way that a cop would see the world, which is exactly the way that he is constantly talking about the world. He's constantly talking about the world in terms of crime, Mm -hmm. constantly talking about the world's in these perceived uh, foreign forces conspiring against Australia. He's constantly talking about terrorists, pedophiles, the real boogeymen of society. That's the way that he sees the world, that he's protecting the rest of society from the real miscreant actors of the world. Um, And that's why I think that he's more dangerous because he has a vision for the Liberal Party, whereas the Liberal Party was just this vassal to serve corporate interests before that. And immediately I do think that rubs off, even if he is perceived as whatever, looking like Voldemort and, and, and being uncouth, he will always come across as having integrity and being authentic because he will always sort of sustain that vision and commit to that in the way that other politicians haven't. So mm. there's a there's a substantial portion of the populace that would at least, whether they vote for him, would at least respect that. I would always, regardless of ideological tilt, I will always respect someone who commits to their values and, and sticks to yeah. them. And ditto. I respect him out of all of the leaders that the Liberal Party has had the most since John Hewson, and it is for the same reason. It's that John Hewson had a vision for Australia. And it's not that I agreed with John Hewson's vision of the Australia of Australia. Uh, it was extremely it was basically just Margaret Thatcher's vision for the UK. Um, but it's the same thing with Dutton, as you just pointed out then. As soon as somebody actually sticks to, you know, uh, has has an idea of what they want the country to be as opposed to just allowing the country to just spin it in the mud like, uh, you know, Scott Morrison did for sure. No vision at all for the country, nothing. Just a complete cash grab for his mates uh, so that he could hold the title of Prime Minister for as long as possible. Ditto the same with Malcolm Turnbull. And, you know, Tony Abbott's just wasn't a very good vision. It was kind of dim and low quality. But, yeah, Dutton, again, something grander, and I honestly think that he would think about the country in a level that you would normally see, and this is honestly not just because of the biases that I have of liking the Labor Party, but it is just a thing that is known that the Labor Party is the party of reform. And if you go into the Labor Party, it is because you have a vision of how you want the country to look. That's why you go into it. Whereas usually, obviously, the Tory parties is going to be, and I hate this word, but more reactionary of just like, we don't need to do that. Fuck that. I'm not going to do that. So it attracts a lot of people that just have no vision, none. So if you do have one in there, It's a very dangerous combination to have a force that corporate Australia agrees with, with someone that wants to move the country in a particular direction. And this is what is very scary about having him as prime minister because he really was for a long time. So you think he'll be prime minister? He could definitely be prime minister for sure. Uh, He's not not old. 
He'll probably be there. Lee. I can't see any other candidates challenging for that leadership. But how? Where's okay. the talent? Exactly. So maybe what's his name? Hasty or something. But anyway, what? All right, we'll get. That. I don't. I look. I don't know. I just hear things on social media. But uh, how did that vision? Uh, coming back to the question, how did that vision sort of manifest in his? role in creating the Department of Home Affairs. And then, and then to answer the question, uh, do you think this this person should actually take that? Well, it's an interview, but should they, if they were offered the job, should they, should they have second thoughts about it? Uh, okay. So really uh, the best way to think about this, and this is another trope of political commentators, but I do really think that the Department of Home Affairs was the Ministry of Love in 1984. It was the place where they started putting all of the intellectual hardware. This is amazing, actually. Have you read the book 1984? Yeah. Fuck, it's depressing. You have to stop. Like a lot of the times when I was doing my regional tour, I was listening to it in the car with Miss Love and you're just kind of car sick because of how much you travel anyway. But also just because 1984 is so mentally taxing you kind of feel psychologically sick listening to it you highly so recommend you, it. so you listened to it, the audiobook did you yeah and the guy was just an amazing narrator and every sentence in it is the sentence of a very bitter 50 year old man reading the paper just being like these cigarettes taste like crap. Do they always taste this bad? <laughs> then I looked over at some cheap pornography. It wasn't filmed like this back in the day. That's like exactly that's just the, that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I'd imagine that's a narration that would perfectly encapsulate the tone of it. You know, there's an underrated book, Animal Farm. Both of them. They're both brilliant. They yeah, really Animal are. Animal better. You like it more? I really liked it, yeah. Mm. Animal Farm has a much more unsettling feeling about it. And I think it is mostly because it's told in a way that is traditionally reserved for children's books. So that's I think there's something so, very Freudian about it. I think that's it. so. That, what is so dark about it. It's dark. Mm. Oh, they're both but extremely they, dark. They definitely are, yeah. But, but, but okay. What, yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah, it's it's, it's the Ministry this. of Love in that, right? So really what happened with the Department of Home Affairs was him, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but there is a... There's this chief bureaucrat that's just been working in Canberra for 30 years and he is known as the most ruthlessly efficient bureaucrat in Canberra. And he concocted this along with Peter Dutton, the Department of Home Affairs, which was just combining essentially everything that you would see in the Ministry of Love, right? Like the thought police were there. Uh, Cybersecurity was there. There's this idea in 1984 that all scientific endeavours ceased because they're no longer necessary in this world. When you say the thought police, what do you talk about? How does that specifically uh, manifest in the home affairs in Australia today? What are they what are they doing? What are they how are they controlling our thought? Oh, uh okay. What's the department called again? I think it's a- no, it's not ASIC. I can't remember which one it stands for, but really they're the ones that kind of they talk to the CIA and the CIA says, we want to prosecute all of these criminals in the US, but we can't because of the constitution. And so they go, "Your cons- uh, sorry, Bill of Rights, and but you don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia, so you're going to pass all of these data retention laws. You're going to pass all of these laws that restrict your civil liberties online and uh, you know allow you to essentially spy on your entire population, and you're going to 
use all of those laws and then your agencies are going to spy on these people in America and then th- and then your agencies are going to give over these documents to the CIA and the CIA will then prosecute them. So it's this loophole that the CIA have used that have turned us into a surveillance state that I think is incomparable to the rest of the Western world. And uh, a big part of that, so the way that I always describe the Department of Home Affairs is it two ways, is the 1984 thing if it's the Ministry of Love. Like it's just a lot of portfolios that have just been merged into this one giant mega department. And it is linked very closely with the CIA in the US. And I always describe it as the CIA of the Southern Hemisphere. It's because they use it to do all the things that they're not allowed to do. Um, and so, so really quickly. So then Peter Dutton almost made friends with the, the U S deep state. So obviously a very powerful friend by creating that department. And did he have that hugely. goal in mind? Because then if the U S deep state wants a certain leader installed in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a country like Australia, that they'd almost certainly have their way. Well, this is actually the thing that I think is very interesting about Dutton is that he's able to do things that other liberal politicians I just don't think are intelligent enough to do. I I think that he's able to use the competing powers of other big powers in in like Australia, say like with Murdoch with um mm, God, I've gone blank now, but the the law that he the the laws that the Liberals passed that forced Google and Facebook to start paying media companies, media bargaining code. Was that him? Was he the architect of those? It's just, look, I, it's very hard when it comes to these things because you can always say that it came to this department and Scott Morrison was the one that announced it, but it has the fingerprints of Dutton all over it. Media bargaining code has the fingerprints of Dutton, especially because when it was around, the amount of exposure that Dutton got immediately exploded. And he's always been the preferable prime minister for Murdoch. Murdoch has always wanted Peter Dutton to be the Prime Minister. Um, and what you're saying there as well, it's a, I think you've correctly identified it. He's done this huge favour for the CIA by doing this. He knows that to this day uh, a Prime Minister has to write essentially a cover letter to the deep state of the US to say, I'm going to play ball, more or less. I mean... Bill Shorten had to kiss the ring. He had to write a letter that was to the American government just saying like how much of a friend and ally and how valued I find the American government. He had to send that to them. Uh, I'm sure at some point it will be revealed that Albanese had to do the same thing. It's a long, long line of people ever since Whitlam, which was just a real line in the sand in American-Australian relations, which was at the core you do not run your own country. You can run your hospitals however you like, but when it comes to resources, when it comes to intelligence, when it comes to defense, we run those departments, which is exactly what they've done. It's the same thing with like how they've made the Australian Defense Force much more aggressive because they're wanting to have a war with China and they're constantly antagonizing them. And so they have made the Australian Defense Force a much more aggressive unit than it was in, you know, say 2010. Now it's 
very attack doggy and like the the technological hardware that they're getting is no longer defensive it's like very offensive weaponry um these are all things that the u.s has installed onto the u and onto australia so yes i do think that he's done that uh but the department of home affairs i think for him is mostly just this convergence of yes that's the case, but also I think that the world is extremely scary and I don't think that we should wait around for warrants to look at a pedophile. And if I think that there is a pedophile, I'm just going to put child porn on their computer, which is all legal. You can do all this stuff now. These are all laws that have been passed. Uh, that the uh, Departments within the Department of Home Affairs can use on people. They can digitally, so not even in the room. They don't even have to sneak into your room. They can... Just if they think that you're look, this is a theoretical example. If they think that you are looking at child pornography, they can just put child pornography on your computer. Yeah, I saw that and when then, that, that when those uh, internet safety laws came in. That was, is very scary. Very scary stuff. Those those laws are sort of meant to be under review in two years from the enactment of them, which is a year from now. Do you think that someone like this could, you know, be good at least to have maybe some ideological diversity within the Department of Home Affairs and so therefore they should take the job or is that they'll eventually become a cog in the system? Well, yes, you definitely would. If you, if this is all I'm talking about, the Department of Home Affairs under Dutton, and this is really important to define the difference between Liberal and Labor government, which is my entire life, so I've just got to do it again, but... That was the Department of Home Affairs there. And if you didn't play ball in the Department of Home Affairs, you're gone. And if you're gone from the Department of Home Affairs, you're gone from the government bureaucracy for good. In fact, the Department of Home Affairs had the lowest morale out of all of the departments because it really was. It's a very, for lack of a better word, Soviet department. Like it's a very oppressive, depressing place to work. It's very authoritative because Peter Dutton was at the helm of it and he ruled it like an iron fist. And this is the other thing. You know that you're doing evil. Now, the worst part about all of it, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a horrible, oh, horrible place. Hell. Was Can we talk about Tekken again? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, go on. <laughs> but the Department of Home Affairs now... Oh, sorry. Yeah, just that 1984 point, right? Like I really liked this because you know how he's just describing what the world looks like in his dystopia and he's saying that there's three super states. It's all about the ever – there's a few things that are amazing about 1984. The first one is that it is just uh, manufacturing consent but in uh, fiction so more people read it. Uh, So that was great. The other thing that it's always talking about is – there is a tendency for power to congeal, no matter what that power is. And after a while, that power, which is the point of all of George Orwell's satires, starts to look the same. So this idea that they're fighting these ideological enemies like Eurasia and East Asia, and then they just switch. over it, 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 The bat of an eye. They'll, they'll just be fighting East Asia for like five years, and then they'll be fighting Eurasia, and then they've always been... Uh, at war with Eurasia and they've always been allies with East Asia. It just switches. He's saying that that is the inevitable result of power itself. So uh, the ideologies, the philosophies behind these governments might vary, but the way that they actually function is virtually indistinguishable. 
is the main point that he's trying to get with in 1984. But the thing that always struck me when I was reading it was this idea that science has been completely eradicated. There's no development in this world because they've realized that science is the thing that always advances a civilization. And if you want to have a hierarchy at the top of a few people controlling society, the more society advances, the harder it is for them to maintain at the top unless they direct science in very specific ways. And the ways that they were doing that was that uh, all scientific advancement was in the areas of coming up with weapons that became more and more elaborate ways of killing people. And the other one was just psychological pressure, just, you know, ways to control the population. That is what happened in the Department of Home Affairs. I'm telling you it's the Ministry of Love. Like that is what Dutton did. Dutton set up the Department of Home Affairs made sure that all scientific funding was going towards cybersecurity and intelligence and these kinds of fields. So all of your money was being directed into spying on you and coming up with ways of doing it better. The example that I was told that I was never forget is uh, my lawyer's friend used to study under the Labor Party the spawning habits of coral so that we have a better understanding of where those eggs go. So in the world of climate change, we can direct them to better places and keep the Great Barrier Reef alive. That funding was cut under the Liberals. Then the Department of Home Affairs was set up. And then they said to this scientist, hey, you know those algorithms you were using for coral spawning? Can we employ you to use those algorithms to track people's thoughts online? That's the difference between a Liberal and Labor government right there. That's where your scientific advancement is going. It's going towards weapons and it's going towards psychological weapons. Does he think that, uh, or or let's just say anyone who's maybe a supporter of his very tough stance on, he's just just very, you know, militaristic foreign policy ideals and etc so does he think he's doing it for the best interests of the country or is do you think he's doing it for himself to try and gain power do you think that he perceives china as a major threat and maybe the the modern australia as having gone soft or whatever it may whatever he may perceive it as and 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 then he's doing that for the greater good do you think do you think in his mind he's doing something virtuous. Yes. Which is another point about this 1984 thing. Like the the Goldstein explanation of 1984, I highly recommend you look it up because it is a very good description of how raw naked power works. But yes, like there with the ruling elite, they think that it is absolutely crucial for them to get an advantage over Eurasia or East Asia or whatever the enemy, the external enemy is at the time. Like they truly believe the dogma. And I truly think that Peter Dutton thinks that China is this imminent threat that's going to, you know, land on Bondi Beach tomorrow and he has to do everything in his power to stop it. This is the thing that I think makes him so much more effective than previous leaders is because he's doing it for a reason. He wants to be prime minister for a reason. Yes, he wants the power, but he wants it so he can direct it in a way. That's so much more, as you were saying, compelling. 
especially to people that have that view of the world. This is pathetic. I hate this study, but you know that study that just said that um, the, the the big difference between a quote-unquote liberal and conservative thinker, which is just code word for Democrat and Republican, right? The difference between a Democrat and Republican thinker is that the fear receptor in a Republican was much larger. Mm. Other, the, like, other than that, their brains weren't that different. And then the part in a liberal's brain that was bigger was the part that deals with ambiguity. So that's two yeah. very distinct ways of seeing the world that, you know, people vote on. Imagine and Dutton, every time you listen to Dutton, it's kind of like, this is the other thing that's amazing. When Scott Morrison speaks, I know because I focus on politics all day, every day, that what he's saying is bullshit. But more importantly, when people listen to him, he sounded like a car salesman. He sounded like he was spinning bullshit. But Peter Dutton, not only is it hard for me to disagree with his specific examples that he's using, but he also truly, sincerely believes them. As you pointed out, there is a sincerity there. So I think that he was creating this extremely oppressive government tool for a purpose, for a way of keeping the Chinese spies out and, you know, punishing the pedophiles. Like that is his worldview. Pedophiles specifically. He, he fucking hates pedophiles. Mm. He really hates pedophiles. Like he's touched. always bringing everything back to it, right? Like he, he's, and you can tell because he was, he was a cop and like immediately you see this all the time. As soon as someone comes to him about I mean, something. Who doesn't hate pedophiles? Yeah, but like with me, for instance, I'm kind of just like, yeah, and then I just get on with my day, you know? But yeah, some people, clearly, okay. you know, the, you know, when some people, when you speak to them, they're just like, they've got a thing about it and you're just like, okay, you know, that's that's like a, it's a real pet peeve of yours. Pedophilia is a pet peeve of Dutton. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a good pet peeve. You it's a good pet peeve. That. That's a, <laughs> um, um, maybe, let's summarise it. Okay, we've spent a long time on this question, but like what's your final... Uh, I, look, I don't. I have nowhere near the knowledge Jordan does here, but I don't see how him taking a job in the Home Affairs under a Labor government is. You know, I don't. I don't see how his concerns are really going to be come to fruition there. And then, at the very least, look, even if a Liberal government gets in, and I assume he's not a, you know, he's sounds like he's much more on the Labor side, and then at least then there'd be, again, some sort of diversity of thought there in a particular government department. So I think it's fine, but what... It, no, now I think this here? is the whole thing. It really depends on a government because that department, as he said, they're moving the AFP from it, which is beautiful, as he pointed out. It, the Department of Home Affairs should not have that many tools of surveillance at its disposal with essentially unfettered... Uh, legality behind it. Like it just you do all of these things that you always hear as being determined as extra legal. Department of Home Affairs has all of that at its disposal with every spook in the country under it. So it's got every tool available and every lever and it can do that. So it's amazing that he's removed the AFP from it immediately. But the second thing that's incredible, and this is what you're talking about here, Anthony Albanese, first, one of his first orders when he became uh, prime minister was to put as the Department of Home Affairs won to come up with a report on how climate change will affect the defensive capability of Australia. So it's immediately got it to come up with all of these reports, figuring out, okay, how many more refugees are we likely supposed to be keeping at bay? 
uh, as a result of climate change, how are we best defending the country against, uh, you know, like resource wars and things like that in the future. So he's pointing it in the right direction of what it should be focusing on to begin with, which is not fighting the US's war, but looking at the imminent, you know, ecological collapse that's going to happen and how best to prepare for that. That's amazing that he's done that. But the second thing that's even more exciting is that he has said, Department of Home Affairs, you are in charge of dispersing and dealing with emergency services from now on. Brilliant. Because this is an overfunded, massive department that was sitting there spying on everyone in Australia, making sure that they didn't say mean things about Dutton, essentially. And he's turned that around and said, okay, you know how the last government was inexcusably stroppy with answering things like the floods and the bushfires Mm. to the degree that I've talked to people that are, uh, you know, aid workers in other countries and doctors in other countries. And they were saying that third world governments had better responses to national disasters than Australia did. That's how much the bureaucracy was hollowed out by the Liberal Party. But the ones that they did obviously increase was defence and home affairs, huge amounts of money going into that. So instead of having to rebuild entire bureaucratic infrastructure from the top, from the ground up, he's just said, no, from now on, you guys, you're going to be working on, like the floods that are happening now, you're going to be working on using all of that intelligence that you've been gathering, all of that data and all of those eggheads that you have there, cracking all of that stuff, how to effectively manage these disasters from now on. Brilliant. That's a national service right there. So in summary, I'm a, you're saying he should take the job. Now I think you should take the job. Yes, but as soon as it's under a Liberal government, it will go back to being the Ministry of Love. Definitely. But that's the difference of what is happening behind the scenes of things that people don't even think about when a government changes. All of these departments that you have no idea what they do, this is what's happening to them. You should make a video about that. I think a lot of people will really enjoy that insight because it's not the mainstream media doesn't talk about that at all. No. No. You should make a video. Oh, I am making like one at the moment that's just going to be a nice little summary of what's been happening here. But I think that you're right. That basic point about the Department of Home Affairs and how it's just changed dramatically needs to be addressed. If you generally keep up the, you know, the idea of this is what the Labor government is doing that people should be aware of, I think. I think people, even if they're not necessarily hardline Labor supporters, would would respect that because it's it's just not really covered by the mainstream media at all. No. It's just any little uh, foible is covered. Mm. But uh, these sorts of department concerns are not, I don't know. Absolutely I don't, not. Like I said, I don't even know any. No. No one does. It's so scary that no one knows anything about the Department of Home Affairs. Mm. And this is the other one that he's done, uh, if I may add this. He's created his own super department But this super department is a convergence of all the environmental departments, all the weather departments, uh, like honestly anything that has like pesticides control, all of that is becoming its own department of home affairs. It's just becoming this giant super department that's supposed to address all of these ecological challenges that Australia is going to be facing in the next 10 to 20 years. That's his department of home affairs. So they are going to have all the levers and all the expertise combined into one department all working under the same umbrella, which is just going to, you know, that's what's happening here. 
brains, scientific brains are moving out of spying on you and moving back into how do we make sure the Murray Darling doesn't dry up? It's amazing. And yet you have all these fuckwits just still supporting the Greens being like, oh, it's name reminds me of tree leaves, so they must be more environmental. And, oh, what are their achievements this week? They uh, removed the Australian flag from behind them and then went on a tirade about how dirty it is. Wow, what, what, a, what a great, noble environmental movement you are. It's just, you know. <laughs> well, a lot of people will agree with you there. <laughs> So this is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm actually really excited about the future of Australia. Now every time I look into any subject, I'm just like, wow. Because this is the whole thing. This is the other thing that happened when the Labor Party got in. So can I just quit? Yeah. How did with the, with the Senate, were these sort of uh, these changes to various departments, they were all accepted in the Senate? There was no... Oh, well, they don't Objection. have a say over that. Oh, okay. They don't create departments. Oh, I suppose actually you probably could pass a bill that says that we want this department done. But mostly what they talk about is funding and laws. But when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the creation of ministries and how those ministries are governed, that's a cabinet decision. So it, they get to decide that stuff. And that's exactly oh, okay. what Peter Dutton did in The Shadows. But it is truly amazing how quickly all of these things have been implemented. And uh, the main thing that I've heard from bureaucrats contacting me, they've all been saying the same thing, that their Labor minister came in and said, uh, what are your ideas? And they were saying every one of them, Department of Environment, Department of Energy, uh, Department of uh, mm. Disability Services, all of them were shocked. They were just like, first of all, the minister never comes to our department to begin with. And the second thing is they certainly weren't interested in anything we had to say ever for nine years, didn't listen to their departments once. All that ever came from the ministry was just a list of layoffs that was happening that week. That's it. So they were all just sitting there hunkering down thinking, fuck, is it going to be me next? Nine years of their life. Then they come in and then they say, oh, um, you know, all of these ideas that you had for like, you know, uh, transforming the energy grid of Australia, can I see them? And, you know, this is just things that have been completely ignored that they had to do in their spare time while they were sitting there for the last nine years thinking about just implementing ways to deliberately fuck up Australia's energy system in the benefit of like three billionaires. Well, again, you've got you to make these videos. Yeah, it does need to happen more. It needs to happen more. So anyway, this is what I'm saying. If you get a government job now as a bureaucrat, I think that you will be doing a public service. Before, honestly, it was really hard for me to defend bureaucrats. I understand that it's because of the tool thing, but it's kind of an extension of my argument about the ABC where it's like, you don't understand our job's hard. And it's just like, yeah, well, you're still fucking accepting my paycheck to sit there and spread propaganda. Fuck off. Like, I don't, I don't have no sympathy for you at all. But uh, now I actually think that you will be doing great service to Australia. Yeah, but no one can sort of, considering elections are every three years, no one can get into a, a government position thinking they'd always be under a Labor government. No. So. No. But this is the thing. Do you think it's fair to criticise bureaucrats in that regard? I do think it because now I know how the game works. When the Liberals are in, 
They don't listen to their departments at all. They get everything written to them by consultants. They shrink departments to the point that they're completely incapacitated and useless anyway. And then they use those budgets to hire external consultants that work for big consultancy firms, small consultancy firms as well. And these consultancy firms just write up reports that say exactly what the minister wants them to say so that they can approve whatever fucking horrendous project that they have like there, right? So they could just be like, yeah, well, this is improved by like an independent survey or something like that. And it's none of that. It's just, I'm paying you to tell me exactly what I want to hear, which is you ask any consultant, that's their job. Their job is to go to corporations and governments that want them to just write up a report that says what they were saying so that they can go to their next board meeting and say, this is the plan, you know? Um, That's what happens. So when the liberals are in, what you do is you leave government and you set up your own consultancy firm and then you get those consultancy jobs, whereas when the Labor Party's in, probably four out of five decisions you agree with and you're implementing and then there's like one out of five that you just like intellectually disagree with but can see the merits of the other one kind of thing. Then when the liberals come in, it's like one out of 10 decisions is good by that department. Uh, But if you go into being a consultant, they're so stupid that they kind of just want that project done and you can write it in such a way that you're minimizing the damage of it. That's what smart bureaucrats do. Yep. Well, there's a world I don't know anything about. Neither do I, but now like when I, when I do hear these people talk about it, their, their lives are, can be extremely depressing, but also they really are just playing Sim City. You know, they they can be making amazing city systems and, you know, incredible futuristic train systems and all that kind of stuff. Are these the ministers or the bureaucrats? The bureaucrats. Yeah. It's a cool job. Like I would could like be. to play SimCity all day. Yeah. It could be. Hmm. You know, like, well, I don't know. Did you like that and game? Like, as a kid? Well, how, much, was... how, much, how much power and, and, and decision-making does an individual have, even if they're at the helm of a given department? I assume there's so many other voices contributing to the, the planning of a city or something, right? Yes, and obviously the higher up you are, the more decisions you're making. This is the other thing that happens when you're in the Liberal Party is when you start getting to the upper echelons of bureaucracy, all you are is a yes-man. Uh, the the ministry does not want to hear anything that you have to say. Your entire job is to just implement whatever this external consultant said you should be doing because the minister said that you should be doing it, right? So, like, it's just like a complete – the thing that they're always talking about is that Putin is the most powerful leader in the world because there are no bureaucratic checks and balances to him. It's just like, do this, and then there's just like a top-down, no filters anywhere. He's removed all of those filters. It's just like – this is happening. And then the the bureaucracy that remains is just there to implement that. Can we, the thing you brought up a, about halfway through this podcast where you talked about how there was a study that showed people who were likely to vote Republican in America had a greater fear receptor and vice versa. Do you think something happened to, do you think this is environmental or do you think that's genetic? I am going to go out on a limb here 
and say that most of the time it's probably environmental. It would have to be. Because I've heard a, a few podcasts recently that have said, that have talked about this, it's sort of been geneticists and experts in the field there talk about similar concerns and they've said uh, so much of our pr- political proclivities are determined from our genetics. Oh, really? Now, you can't sort of discern exactly who they're going to vote for because those parties and those sort of monolithic groups are constantly changing. So what could have been a more fear-based party 50 years ago could have completely transformed 50 years later. But generally speaking, I guess that, yeah, your more conservative parties are, are likely to hold it, to to, to wield power among it a portion of the populace that has a more, yeah, uh, fear-based or structure-based way of thinking and being. Okay, so it's genetically what's happening and then they're just getting attracted to those communities that reflect that. Potentially. Potentially. I'm just just, just spitballing here, but... Yeah. Think of... Okay, let me think about this and some people... Because now there's a... For young people, it's a very political age, isn't it? You know, there's 15-year-olds here talking about political philosophy in a way that just did not happen when I was 15. And so let me think about, at least in my life, the sorts of people that would that's cute, that would be uh, inclined to be on the quote-unquote right and vice versa and if they share any sort of... I've always thought, I've always had a suspicion that people, I guess, on the more, more so the cultural left, have had a very sheltered life. And really haven't had to deal with too much uh, hardship and uh, had to overcome things themselves. And they generally have faith in the sort of systems around them, whether that's family or community or whatever it is. And therefore, they have more faith in a bureaucracy to, I guess, take care of not only their individual needs, but the needs of the collective it's very evident when you see them and it's always a certain type of person uh, Whereas, yeah, that, that is into that and it's always people from families that have useless jobs that pay a lot. And whereas vice versa, I wonder where, where the people who maybe, I'm talking more broadly on the sort of modern culture world where the people who lean right on those issues have one either had to fend for themselves, i.e., been bullied quite incessantly, or just grown up in a way that has fostered a sense of individualism in the fact that they can't depend on the institutions around them. Again, whether that be teachers, families, uh, whatever groups they're a part of, or uh, people who have just been let down by the existing bureaucracy and institutions to the point where they've become so cynical that they just don't have faith in any bureaucracy or systems whatsoever. And then what something you've said to me in a few other podcasts is that that's actually a cynical ploy from some um, conservative governments to make various departments and bureaucracies just so useless that people lose faith in the idea of a bureaucracy in general. I've never really thought of that because I definitely had those, particularly in the arts, I've definitely had those thoughts. Oh, yeah, massively. um, When I was younger, but I've never really thought thought that, hey, maybe there there were these sort of unscrupulous puppeteers that were deliberately making bureaucracies 
inept and useless to ensure that the populace loses faith in them. Mm. That's actually, that's, that's extremely sinister, but I'll just never, that's stuck with me for a long time. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I think that you're definitely right about it. There's, there's an element of toughness. They, they seem to value toughness, people on the cultural right. It all seems to just come down to that. Just, you know, have a tablespoon of concrete and tough a nap. That's, that's pretty much probably what it really to, is. Huh? They've probably had to toughen up for whatever reason in their life. Yes. I don't think it's when people on, I guess, the cultural left perceive those people as some sort of, you know, infantile caricature. I don't think that's fair. I think you'd have to sort of psychoanalyze what they may have been through in their life and understand why they think it's necessary for everyone to toughen up and for a country to toughen up. I'm, I'm sure with even Peter Dutton, it'd be very interesting to see what he, if you, if you had a camera following him throughout his childhood, his adolescence, and maybe his early years as a police officer. It would be very interesting to see what uh, experiences he may have had to uh, develop the the ideological view that he has. Oh, well, he definitely, as all cops, he would have seen horrific things for sure. And the higher up that he went, he would just be hearing secondhand about a bunch of horrific things that cops have seen. So it does make a lot of sense that he would see that, which is why I always thought that it was environmental. Because even when you're talking about someone like Albanese, for instance, why does Albanese like the Labor Party? Because he grew up in housing commission. And so he knows yeah. that, you know, uh, really the difference between having affordable housing and uh, something like, you know, a, a single parent pension or something like that really is the difference between being homeless and having a house, mm. you know? But now a lot of people, I'd guess, a lot of people in Housing Commission might actually have be more inclined to maybe vote for some of those protest parties, your, your, your One Nations or Clive Palmer. Which was the genius of those. The absolute genius of it was that it started peeling away the working class vote because the Liberal Party can never really do it. They can aim at the middle class by giving out enough middle class subsidies to just drain the budget, but they could never really hit salt of the earth Australia. That was always Labor territory. Uh, but now, now because of One Nation and Clive Palmer being able to come up with different messaging that hits these people, you go onto construction sites now and it'll be like 50-50 that'll be voting for the Labor Party and then others that'll be voting for One Nation and Clive. Do you think that's also because, like you said, there's a lot more the, – the, the, the portion of people who've come through that lifestyle in the Labor Party has it diminished and it's a lot of people who've actually just lived a very upper middle class life, gone on to do law at whatever university and then moved into the party rather than people who've actually been in working class situations and maybe gone through the unions and then made their way into the party. Yeah, it doesn't speak like it used to speak. That's definitely true. There's definitely... A few reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that Australia is just a lot more professionalised than it was in the 60s. Mm. Uh, that's true. As you were saying, I really think that a massive thing is that uh, this is actually something that Mark Latham identified, the hollowing out of major parties because there's only – and the other thing is I know it because when you go to any 
major party meeting. It's the same thing as what you see in universities. The people of the Labor Party table and the people of the Liberal Party table, massive nerds that no one wants to be associated with. The people that are in it don't <laughs> want to be associated with each other. They're that's just there because politics. they want a seat. That's yeah. <laughs> it's all politics, isn't it? Like, But, that, but that's the whole thing. Politics didn't used to be like that. Like, it's very obvious as well. You go back and you look at prime ministers from, you know, 1901 and they're all chads with like square jaws and like huge unapologetic moustaches or if they were fat and they were Tory, they kind of had that real unapologetic like, poor should be working in houses, shouldn't they? Like they, they have that kind of like real unsympathetic view of the world. Like they, they were just much more yeah. manly than they are now. And then it's very obvious. Once photographs start coming in, they just start looking nerdier and nerdier. And it's because politics has just become so systemized that there's just a very obvious way of getting there. And if you want to play that game, you have to get up there that way. And the game is a very administrative pencil pushing game. Whereas before you go and look at what the resume was of most prime ministers. And it was always something like, I don't know, I worked at the post office for a bit. I was a coal miner for a bit. I got a degree in law when I was like 38. Hmm. That used to be a prime minister. I'd guess most of the population would actually like that. Would want I would love to, it. Yeah, I mean, I would too. I think most people, when you, if you ask them, do you want someone who's been in the, in the system their whole life, they'd say no. Christ, no. They just don't think like the rest of Australia. In fact, uh, one of my mates from Michael West Media, he was in Canberra for a few weeks. Uh, His job was to become a correspondent in Canberra and he said, I can't, I have to move back to Sydney. These people are intolerable. The Canberra bubble is real and they work in a way that is completely alien. What what were... Their, their personalities or just the way they work? The way they work and obviously their personalities. They're extremely narcissistic. They're insufferable. Uh, they're constantly playing this game of schmoozing but also stabbing each other in the back. They're always playing a power game. Every time that they give you a compliment, it's very insincere and you know that it's because they want something else out of you later on. You know, like it's it, it's it's a very usury, very... Machiavellian environment. And one example that he gave was he said to one of the journalists, oh, yeah, I remember you. It's just, sorry, I didn't recognize you because you look a bit different in your picture in The Guardian. And he immediately walked away and he saw him walk over to a bunch of other journalists uh, in The Guardian and then he saw them whispering and pointing at him and then those journalists wouldn't speak to him. And that that was the end. That was the end. He just broke this and like over nothing, just said you look different in a picture. And it was just like, well, that whole circle is gone. There's very few circles there. So you just have to play this constant tightrope game. Yeah, that's pretty gross. It's gross, isn't it? Yeah, the the best, uh, you've had the, the, what you said, um, you've said this a few times, but you, you, when you weren't saying the mainstream media are like, the nerds of the elite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right I don't find that very funny because every time I see like a young journalist or, you know, a, a young columnist or something, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. Losers of the elite. <laughs> you got Losers. bullied by the rugby boys. Yeah. 
and the rugby boys <laughs> all go into the private sector. All go into the private the problem. sector. All those chads that maybe did politics in early 1900s, they just go into the private sector now. Why the yeah. fuck would you want to go into politics? Why? I'm a nerd. I want to go into fucking politics. I wanted to go in the private sector. Of course. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's pretty telling. Isn't it? Mm. I think you, yeah. You've got to change that somehow. Well, this is the way that you're supposed to change it. The way you're supposed to change it is to get people to go to their branch meetings, but it's a very grueling process because it's filled with a bunch of freaks because the only people that are usually into politics are people that are very obsessive, uh, antisocial people that kind of just have this pet peeve that they're going to change the world, but it's definitely not a reflection on their fucked internal psychology. There's that person and then there's just very schmoozy, smarmy human beings that are there just to get a seat, right? Like that's that's the base of what most politics are, which is why a lot of politicians just do not reflect mainstream Australia. And so a, a normal person going into that environment is like, this is horrible and has to leave. Mm. So you have to go on mass to these things. It's very difficult to get people to move into this. But that was originally what the Labor Party structure was set up to do. It was set up to do to get people from all walks of life to go in there so that they could better come at policy from different perspectives. You know, you'd have builders, you'd have public servants there, you'd have businessmen, you'd have a shopkeeper. That's why it's so uh, it's so universally appealing when you have that, sort of, particularly in Australia when there's that sort of out- outlook that, oh, they're all fuckwits. Like that's, of course, that's appealing because, well, they are. Yeah. <laughs> the they are. The majority of them are. So when people think to themselves that they're very dismissive and cynical of our politicians and bureaucrats, oh, they're all a bunch of fucking cunts. Well, yeah, in in all admittedly the limited experience you have with them, yeah, they kind of are. Mm. Smarmy, usury human beings. Which is – but then the response many people have is like, oh, I'll just avoid it when it's such a intrinsic and important part of – civil society that that's not a healthy outlook to have but man it's just so hard to avoid the like cuntiness of it really is yeah i don't know how you do it well i do it by basically insulating myself in my own universe and then just picking out a few politicians that are very on the ball and you know what yeah they all hate you actually who Oh no! But like the 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 Canberra bubble would probably hate you. Oh yeah, they right? despise me. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Anyone in the Canberra bubble hates me. But, but it's- if you, you should play on that more because then you just get more. Even if they don't agree with you ideologically, if you're just like, man, everyone in Canberra, fuck. Like, that's what Trump did, right? He's always yeah. Talking I'm an about outsider. Like, yeah, the mainstream media hates me. Everyone hates me. Like if you if you and it's true. It's not like you're lying. No, people would really like. like they're like, yeah, fuck yeah, we like you. If they hate you, we like you. Mm. <laughs> Well, it's always the case. This is something that I've really got to get into more, which is why I just need to find some other writer to do all this other stuff for me. But, man, you can see it. You garner a very different audience when you start reacting to all of the insane cat ladies on TikTok making responses and you start responding to blue checks on Twitter making tweets. That attracts that kind of person because you start – because it starts – that's when – because and this is Jordan Peterson's advantage of that kind of absolutely. But this is bubble. the advantage that Jordan Peterson has, and this is why these people detest them so much. I think it's just because Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, so he understands these people and what's motivating them at a very deep level, yeah. and they don't like being called out. 
I think that that's mm. they're playing two completely separate games, you know, mm. and he knows exactly how to pinpoint it. And also, I think just for a lot of normal people, verbalizes exactly why they don't like people in that politics world. Yeah, but political apathy is a dangerous path to go down. I mean, even this is a funny little anecdote, right? But like the strata here in this building here, that there's a there's this constant change of. Uh, people who are in charge of that strata and then you know, you know the owners of each apartment can they used to get notices saying hey the building meeting is on um this month this is when it's on and that's where i'd assume they discuss various works relative to the strata that you're paying which is essentially the tax and then i never went i was like oh, i couldn't be fucking bothered this is a pretty nice building what's the point mm. gradually over the time that i've been be- that i've lived here you, you you've just seen the capital works slowly dissipate and the just the general regard for the health of the building slowly go down. Mm. <laughs> but to mm. the point where mm. now there mm. are various mm. factions that have I've both like both have sort of argued with me, telling me how unscrupulous the other faction is. No. Yeah. And then I don't even know who to believe now. And there's <laughs> uh, one person is saying, oh, this person is just getting their tradie mates to come and do it and purposely do a bad job so they can take everyone's uh, uh, strata payments. And, and you know, the other person saying this person's completely unhinged and just lying through their teeth. And to the point where, you know, the, the average person within this organization is entirely powerless. And I couldn't help but feel this is just an apt metaphor for the degradation of a democracy. It, it really is. Oh, my God. Yeah. Even more local than local government. That's what's happened there. Yeah. And you just can't help but feel everyone in power is a cunt. It's <laughs> <laughs> all out for themselves. <laughs> and that's how you feel about it. Well, at the start, there was one guy that was actually a bit weird, but he actually got everything done. And I should have... There was like this vote or something... And I didn't go to the vote. And he was telling everyone, he was like, you're a nice bloke. If you could come vote for me to stay as the strata manager or whatever, I would be greatly appreciated. Man, do I regret not voting for him. And what's the bet that like there were six people that voted? No, I would have gone, man. Like most of the people who own apartments in this building are, um, you know, overseas investors and most people are renting. They don't give a fuck. So I, 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 they don't even give you notices for those meetings anymore. So I think it's very telling. It's actually just ex- it's it's the perfect metaphor of how a, a, you know a tyrant can take over. And I, look, I don't even know what the truth is because <laughs> I don't even know who's because again, there's these two competing sort of sides that are telling me one's telling me one thing, the other's telling me the other thing. All I can see is like just these. All these little random holes in the building, and just like the the car park, the the gate doesn't fucking work, and all yeah. this stuff like that. And, and so you just think and I'm like, I'm paying my fact. strata. What yeah. the fuck's going on, cunt? Like, and then you know. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, it's my fault. I should I shouldn't have had this apathy for five years, thinking, yeah, yeah, it's fine. At least you and have the incentive that. structures, and you know, I always just thought, oh, look, look, the incentive structures would be there, considering there's a meeting and a vote. Look, they'd obviously have to perform their duties well enough that they'd achieve the uh, a majority of the vote. But look, when everyone is apathetic, that's exactly what happens. Hmm. Hmm. 
So look, Damn, if, you've got a, you've, you've, if you're in you've a strata hit it, hit it. situation, if you're in a in a, in an apartment building or a duplex or whatever, go to your meetings. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it, man. It's, a, really... it's, it's annoying, but and it's it's just all Karens, but just go. Yep. I fully endorse that. That is that is amazing. You got to do something with that. It is. It's such a. It's the perfect microcosm of a democracy. Yeah, it really is. It really hit me. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, and now and then it's very. Once someone like that is in, then it's just actually hard to. You know. Now I, I just you don't know what to do. You could just slowly see the living conditions of the building deteriorate and you just get angrier and angrier so you make more emotional decisions but you just don't know what to do because it's not i don't have any power because i don't even know how to go to these fucking meetings anymore well this is I'm the sure, other thing. look i don't actually take that i'm sure it wouldn't be that hard i've actually emailed a few people i think the cogs are turning in the right direction but yeah yeah but um the point is because you can also see it as well. You see this really primitive press happening around here because I've seen these notifications. Yeah, of going, you've seen them on the strata. It's, dude, that, I know who that guy is. Uh, and okay. I don't know this who to trust. That's one of the factions. Okay. Uh, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. And so, like, I, I, the other guy told me, I can't, I don't even know what the fuck I'm allowed to say, <laughs> even though it's a local building. But one guy basically told me, oh, this other guy, don't listen to him. He's insane. He's been arrested before. I actually talked to that guy and he's like, yeah, I was arrested because some other guy completely said that because I put a camera in his face, I was assaulting him. Mm. And then I don't know Holy who shit. to believe. Now, Holy shit. I don't know who to believe. And then oh someone's God. leaving notes everywhere saying <laughs> it's all a scam. <laughs> and then like, I just don't know who to believe. Oh, anymore. man, you are in such a... Because like oh. they're all, they're both very nice. They're both very nice, friendly people. And so I they they have both like basically invited me over to dinner and I've essentially, I, I, no, I was almost going to get dinner with one. I, I, I've been meaning to anyway. Like again, they're probably trying to get me, like, I don't know if I was a Machiavellian power hungry actor, but in the microcosm of a small strata um, organization, <laughs> then yeah, I'd probably try to befriend someone who maybe uh, has a say as well. Surely, because that's what an unethical government would do, wouldn't they? They just, oh hey, you're you own a pretty reasonable business here. Have this extra money and let me wine and dine you. Go have this boat party where there's a bunch of hookers there. Yeah. Oh, just do this thing that we want you to do. Yes. Yeah. You're seeing it happen in real time. You're seeing how the game works, and then it just keeps getting. It's, it's, it's like the same thing, but it's the same. The figures just keep getting better, and I, I suppose like the 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 level of players, you know, like mm. I suppose it's just like when you get to state level, it's kind of just like the super league, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's but, cool, uh, man. It's oh, I don't know if "cool" is the right word. I'd say, but uh, not not the right word. But it's <laughs> like you know what I honestly think. I think that that would make a sick sitcom. I've thought about that too. Yeah, yeah. Strata. Strata, because then you're dealing with just like the most hilarious people on the planet, real estate agents being one of them, owners, owner-occupiers, but investors and and just 
People who own small apartments are usually pretty weird. Like who owns it's a beautiful. small apartment? Like usually people will like wait to marry someone and buy a house. But if you own a small apartment in a complex in a city, yeah, you're probably a pretty comedic character already. Yeah. Like what the there, fuck? There would like, surely be many Kramers here. Yeah, they're probably walking past me hearing me make a video. They're, but like what the fuck is this? It's 10.30 at night and they're hearing this. Yes. So I'm definitely one of those characters and I've definitely heard some uh, other. Like the other, a few weeks ago, I woke up at about 2 a.m. at night and my na- next door neighbor was like, you fucking shut that dog up or I'm going to fucking bite the fucking shit out of it, cunt. This is dog bucket. <laughs> it wasn't that loud, but like, yeah, clearly it had been, it had been keeping him awake. Yeah. And then I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep because yeah. I was fucking, I was like, there was just a jolting yell. Yes. And the dog kept barking. The whole time. And, I, and then I heard someone going into the lift. Going downstairs, banging on a door. It was that loud. It was 2 a.m. No other noises. I could hear it and just violently banging on a door. And then all I heard next was the dog shut up. I don't think anything really sinister happened, but then the owner must have finally somehow shut the dog up. But <laughs> that's. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, close quarters. Fuck, I just want this close housing quarters. market to collapse so I can upgrade to a house already. But um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Lori did like ruin the value. Like, if anyone knows where I actually live, the value just gone down. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, we'll leave it there. Uh- <laughs> God, see, this is the thing that I'd really like to do before I die. Okay, all right, you go on that. That. What? Just some sitcom like that. This is oh. the only thing that I'm really sad about the old media sphere dying is that you can never get into the position where you could have like a sitcom that's just called like Neil, you know, and then it'd be sick. The Neil show, yeah. What an ego trip just to have an entire show that's probably got a budget of 10, 20, 30 million dollars. Just An named. episode. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Be so good. With the I know. I know. Uh, Paulie from Fat Pizza is making one about local council. Oh, I dude! I saw go. you in Hal. Okay, I'll talk about this in the next episode. But man, I love Halzos. So good. It is. It's so probably, glad it's It is going. the best comedy show in Australia right now. Well, it's the only one. It's the only one, and hands down, it is. It's. It's really. But there's a reason cool. it survived the culls. Exactly. I thought it would be kind of trashy. I guess. I, I think a lot yeah, of well, people it is would trashy, think that, but that's what's but so charming just, but about that's it. That's what. Yeah. It was. It was just unapologetic and yeah. very funny. Yeah. Um. So go check out Houses if you have if Jordan's in it. So go check that out. Uh, thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for your question. Uh, I guess we'll be talking about cell agriculture, maybe whether it's the next podcast or some of the. Uh, Coming podcast, we'll be talking about that. If you want to send in a question, neilcolhatka.com slash podcasts. All the money goes straight to charity. Uh, come see me live, comedyuntamed.com. Not just me, a bunch of comedians. Um, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Western Sydney. Perth on sale soon. Uh, Adelaide coming soon. Wollongong coming soon. And you know what? Maybe Rockhampton. I don't know. It might be a while before Rockhampton, but uh, it'll be on the cards one day. FriendlyGeordies.com, go see him live as well. All right, see you next time.